The following podcast contains descriptions of rape, sexual abuse, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Families That Kill, the Donut Shop Murders. Nobody looks at Sherman McCrary or Carl as somebody important in life. Quite the contrary. People look at him as an absolute nobody, and they feel that themselves. And I think they probably got a sense of control and dominance when she was pleading for her life. If I keep agitating Sherman, I'll probably get us both killed. So he's going to rape her. If I try to stop it, he'd kill me, then rape her anyway. I was a young, idealistic cop who became a detective, and I was really hopeful that he could get the death sentence and I could be there on the day when they flipped the switch. Gina came in, uh, she asked Sherman, is Forrest dead? Sherman said, well, probably. So she told Sherman, you know, well, uh, do anything you want to me, don't kill me. And so Sherman asked Danny, who grinned, you know, he said, nah, I don't think so. And uh, she, you know, she's not real shook up or, you know, this is the one thing that surprised me about it. She wasn't at all that hysterical because under ordinary circumstances, I figured that a woman that's just seen her husband shot down would be kind of hysterical, but she wasn't. Uh, she was concerned with her own life, but we didn't have our way with her. It was, uh, I thought about it later, and it was odd that we didn't. Uh, I figured Danny was going to cause. She was, you know, she was offering it to him, flat out offering. And uh, I think that maybe that was the problem. I think if she was putting up some kind of fight or struggle about it, then maybe he would have, you know, wanted it more. The 1970s, the era of some of the most heinous serial killers of all time. Charles Manson, Ted Bundy, the Zodiac Killer, and the McCrary family. Violent, nasty, and they didn't care about anything other than gratifying their own base desires. Though little known today, they were one of the most murderous families in history, led by a psychopathic patriarch and his depraved son-in-law. Sherman was a small-time screw-up. Carl was a small-time screw-up. When these guys got together, there was a chemistry between them. And then at some point, they walked into that Winchell's Donut Shop in Salt Lake City and saw Sherry Martin. And just robbing the donut shop became, let's take the girl. They roamed the country robbing, raping, and killing up to 22 people in 1971 and 72, most of them very young women. You're about to hear their story, raw and ruthless, and we'll hear for the first time exclusive prison recordings of one of the killers. After we killed the girls, we never talked about it. We said nothing and rode along in the car and just tried to ignore it. As he tells all. I've been on this ride alone. Sun goes down, I howl and moan, and I know the cries of fellow 
aching souls I need something to come I sent a track that leads me on and I show my teeth cause time has made me cold from Wondery and Trooper Entertainment this is Families Who Kill the Donut Shop Murders my eyes are closed my eyes are closed October 17, 1971, Mesquite, Texas, a sunny evening. After their robbery, kidnap, murders in Salt Lake City and Colorado, the McCrary Taylors retreated to their home base of Texas to lay low and, the idea was, cool off. Carl and Ginger, with their kids shacked up with Carl's mom in Athens, Sherman, Liz, and the McCrary clan landed about an hour northwest in Mesquite. Carl took a job as a rancher and was enjoying being out of sight. One of Carl's big struggles with the McCrary's was his inability to extricate his wife, Ginger, from her mom and dad's codependent clutches. Now he finally had his wife to himself, and Sherman and Liz had their own quiet, independent life. But as always with this family, stillness, sameness, normalcy fizzled lightning quick. Here's forensic psychologist Lewis Schlesinger. Now, when you look at a case like this, the average normal person listening to this is saying, why, why don't you just get a job? And, and, you know, the two guys go get a job doing something somewhere, get a paycheck and, and live like all of us do. You know, um, no, that's the way normal people think. They don't see life that way. They're not going to work 40 hours a week for a menial amount of money, take guff from bosses that because these are low low on the totem pole workers, they're told what to do, and they just don't want that. They're too angry, they're, they're just too, 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 they don't see life that way. They would much rather go out, rob somebody, spend it all on junk, even if they got a lot of money, which they didn't, but if they did, they just spend it on junk and then go on to the next one. They see life in a different way. These individuals, don't operate in the same sphere that the rest of us do. And so you can't understand people like McCrary and, and, and all of them looking at it from your perspective and your frame of mind and your life experience because they don't see the world that way. Um, they're not going to go out and get a job and have to be there on time and be told what to do and be diminished by a, a supervisor. They're not going to do that. They would much rather go out and, and rob and kill and, and, and just, just do it that way. They, they don't plan for the future. They're not saving money for a, to buy a house or send your kids to college. They don't see life that way. They're just living for today. And, um, and that's the way it is. For Carl's wife, Ginger, Athens was dull as hell. She missed her mom and daddy, as she called Liz and Sherman. She missed a road and she missed passing bad checks like they were going out of style. Plus, Liz and Sherman were calling two, three, five times a day, begging her to visit. Here's a situation in Carl's own words from a taped confession he made in prison. The tapes are 50 years old and very degraded, so he had an actor recreate his parts. But I couldn't avoid the fact that she couldn't stay away from them. They wouldn't stay away from her, and after all, she was married to me. Supposed to be thinking about what I felt, you know? Not what somebody else felt, but I didn't say anything. 
this is one of the faults I have. I just didn't say anything. I just let it slide where I shouldn't have. In many ways, Ginger was the engine that kept the McCrary murder machine going. She was daddy's little girl and Carl's supportive wife, the fulcrum between these two depraved men. With terrible eyesight and a host of other health issues, Ginger was there to be protected and pampered and almost always got her way. As far as police knew, Ginger never participated in any of the killings directly. But she was undoubtedly aware of what was happening and abetted it. Ginger also had an insatiable need for money. She blew through cash as quickly as it came through the door, wrote literally hundreds of bad checks, and looked to Carl to keep the money flowing in by whatever means necessary. Later on, when he was on trial, Carl would blame Ginger and the McCrary's for creating the conditions that pushed him to murder. He called them a pack of wolves, a rapacious horde that he continually needed to feed with money and mayhem. It wasn't his fault, he said. It was theirs. Here's Anya Kane from the Murder Sheet podcast. The cops are going to throw up their hands and be like, yes, women are always shopping. I've definitely been tempted to go on a rape and murder spree as a result of that, too. I mean, it's just all of these people are so dishonest and slimy. I just feel like it's just this big factory of excuses about why this happened once they get found out, because I don't think any of them have an excuse. I don't think any of them have an explanation for why this happened. I think they were just really horrible, selfish people, and they did whatever they wanted to other people. And then when they got caught, like, nothing really made sense when people would ask them, why did this happen? Oh, well, my wife likes to buy clothes. You know, it's so banal almost. It kind of, it's infuriating. Carl Taylor actually described living in this family as, as sort of living with a pack of wolves in terms of whenever he would bring home money from these robberies, It would just be immediately spent. Uh, The McCrary's could not contain themselves when it came to consumption. And I think with his statement on that, I think we're seeing a bit of rationalization. He's trying to excuse the way he behaved uh, around, well, they made me do it. They, they, They spent all my money. What was I supposed to do? I couldn't I couldn't keep up with them. So I had to get you know, crazier and crazier with the with the jobs I was pulling off and perhaps people had to die because I needed to keep my family fed. And I, I think that's an excuse from him. At the same time, I think I think the McCrary Taylor clan was sort of a pack of wolves in the sense that like these were not well planned, intricate heists that earned a ton of money. Uh perhaps at the max, which of course was much more money in 1971 than it is now. Uh, But when you think about it, I mean, they're they're traveling cross-country to do some of these jobs. So they're having to eat and potentially stay somewhere unless they're going to sleep in their cars. Uh, And and it's sort of like, what was this all for? Are they really earning that much money from doing these jobs typically because I mean in, in some they, they they make like eighty dollars from it and and it, they end up miles and miles away from their home. So it, it does seem like they weren't particularly smart about picking targets that where they could really get a lot of money without a lot of risk and that they could 
start sort of saving up or, or you know using that to to fund their lifestyles in a, in a smarter way. After all of Sherman and Liz's pestering, Carl finally broke down and took Ginger and the kids to see her folks in Mesquite. And here is where a whole new set of complications arise. It all starts when Sherman proposes a ride into town in search of booze. His habit is up to two-fifths of hard liquor a day. This is tough to procure in a region that's largely dry, but Sherman knows just the place to hit up. And this time, he wants his 19-year-old son Danny to ride along. Danny was an emotionally unstable drug addict with a penchant for running up and down the streets on LSD. He was definitely a liability. Just how big, Carl didn't know. According to his confession, Carl wasn't sure what Sherman had in mind that evening. A holdup? Something more hellacious? Carl is acutely aware that they were in Texas now, a state where they'll fry you in a heartbeat if you kill somebody. This is what I'm saying about the thing about it is that it was never enough. But the problem is that there was never enough money because they spent it so fast. I tell you, I'm kind of funny about this. Ginger would say I'm tight-fisted as hell, and I don't care how I get the money, whether I'm working for it, whether I'm stealing it. The fact is, I don't like to... I pay my bills, and I buy what I have to buy. Otherwise, I keep it. And then... On that fateful night in Mesquite, Carl and Sherman strike again. Here's Kevin from the murder sheet. I, I've always found the Forrest and Jenna Covey case uh, especially sad to think about because I think about how terrible it would be to be kidnapped with someone you love and to watch them suffer and die and not be able to stop it. And that was the fate of the Covey family. Uh, Jenna Covey worked at a drive-in grocery as a night manager. She was 19 years old. Her husband, Forrest, was uh, 22. He went into the grocery on the night of October 17th to uh, bring her her supper. And he decided to stay to help her out until closing time. Then sometime between 9.15 and 9.30 that night, the store was locked up and the cubbies disappeared. And subsequently, all the money was found to be missing from the cash register, and there's also several cartons of cigarettes missing. Uh, Danny McCrary, uh, about a year later, gave a statement to the police about what happened that night. He said that uh, Carl Taylor instructed uh, him, instructed Danny to drive up to the back of the store. Taylor held a gun on the cubbies and forced them out of the store and into the car. And when the couple were in the car, both Taylor and Sherman uh, assured the cubbies that they would not be hurt. Uh, Taylor then instructed Danny to drive to a barn, which Danny did. And Carl Taylor and Sherman told the Cubbies to get out of the car and go inside the barn. Uh, Danny followed them into the barn. He saw Carl holding a gun on Forrest. And then uh, Danny said that he remembered seeing Forrest and Jenna Covey being forced to lay down on the floor, face down. And at that point, both Sherman and Carl Taylor tied their hands behind their backs with wire. 
and Carl stepped back and reached into his pocket and got a gun out. Forrest Covey had just finished his military obligations and returned to civilian life, but a bad foot injury had sidelined him from working. Jenna, with two small children at age 19, was working at a Mr. M convenience store to help pick up the slack. Here's what happened from Carl's point of view. Okay, so, well, Sherman's sitting in the back seat with Kobe's wife. I had no idea Sherman would try to kill them, not two of them together. I did it. Uh, no way. Uh, by this time, I had a pistol of my own, and he started whopping his own pistol out on me. Well, he got to face one himself, you know, because now I was packing. Not since I went and showed him mine. He hasn't threatened me at all. Because I think then he knew that he was on an even killed ground because Sherman and I both had a pistol. So as far as the Coves, I think, well, this is two that's gonna walk away. This is two he's gonna walk away from. So we got down there, you know. I never, I didn't even ask Danny where we was going, you know. We just drove. First thing I know, he pulls up to what I refer to as the old sand place. That's where my grandmother and grandfather had lived for years, you know. Danny had only been down there three or four times. We've been down to see the lake and this and that and the other, so he knew where it was at. And it kind of surprised me that he went straight down there. So we got out of the car and and I kind of had a bad feeling about Forrest Covey because he was willing to split and leave his wife in the car. Uh, he didn't care what happened to her. He tried to get away. And the only thing I thought of was stopping him. Yeah, he tried to run because as I got out of the car, he took off with his wife still in the car. And so bang, I shot him in the upper part of the back with a 22 hollow point. It was just a reflex reaction. I'm not sure if it killed him right then and there, but Danny stepped in and finished the job. What happened was uh, we picked Covey up and took him inside the big barn, and then we laid him down. And the thing about it was, the weirdest was that wire. This was weird. I don't know to this day who tied him up with that wire, because it was so long. Who did it? I don't have no idea. And what was the purpose? In my estimation, I don't know, because I thought Covey was dead, because I know the damage a hollow point can do. And Gina came in, uh, she asked Sherman, is Forrest dead? Sherman said, well, probably. So she told Sherman, you know, well, uh, do anything you want to me, don't kill me. And so Sherman asked Danny, who grinned, you know, he said, nah, I don't think so. And uh, she, you know, she's not real shook up or, you know, this is the one thing that surprised me about it. She wasn't at all that hysterical because under ordinary circumstances, I figured that a woman that's just seen her husband shot down would be kind of hysterical, but she wasn't. Uh, she was concerned with her own life. But we didn't have our way with her. 
it was uh, I thought about it later and it was odd that we didn't uh, I figured Danny was going to cause she was you know she was offering it to him flat out offering and uh, I think that maybe that was the problem I think if she was putting up some kind of fight or struggle about it then maybe he would have you know wanted it more She's talking to Sherman, and he just all of a sudden raised up the gun and shot her right between the eyes. Just not a word or anything else. He's just standing there looking at her. He raised the gun and pulled the trigger. Uh, I don't know how many times she was shot. Uh, I handed Danny my gun and went out to the car to get the flashlight, and uh, I don't know how many times Gina Covey was shot. I don't recall. The bodies of Jenna and Forrest Covey were found a week later, 40 miles east of Mesquite, fully clothed and bound, hands and feet, with bailing wire. Forrest Covey's body gave up nine 22 caliber bullets to the head and four 32 caliber bullets to the spine. Jenna's body had six 32 caliber bullets and three 22 caliber bullets in the head. There's making sure a victim is dead, and then there's this going horrifically beyond the pale. These ballistics would glaringly match up with the earlier murders, killers with a clear, traceable M.O. Sherman's gun was his beloved 32 German-made Saturday Night Special. He knew the risks of using it repeatedly, but viewed the gun as his signature. The money stolen in this double murder, $100. As we were making this documentary podcast, we spent an enormous amount of time trying to find people who were personally scarred by the murders. Almost all of them didn't wish to speak with us, mostly because it was too painful to relive the McCrary's brutality and the black holes the family's grisly deeds left in their lives. But one woman, who was personally ravaged by the family's ruthless crime spree, came forward to share her story. Her name is Hillary, and she's a mom of three living in Houston, Texas. She's a successful boutique owner and involved in various charitable initiatives in her hometown. Hillary's father was Jenna Covey's brother, and Jenna's murder destroyed his faith in a higher power in the world. Here is her story. This is so hard for me to talk about that it's probably going to be the only thing that's going to be able to get through it. My name is Hillary. I am in my 40s, and before I was born, my father's sister and brother-in-law were murdered by the family. I grew up in the shadow of that and knowing that I would never know her. However, I am close with both of her children and it was something that shadowed over our family our entire lives. It, it affected everything. The ripple effect of it affected every everything from childhood till today. Growing up as a kid, I had three friends that were in the neighborhood um, that would come over and I could go to their houses and that's about it. Um, I was never, ever allowed to go to sleepovers or parties or anything that were not really close to the house that, that I couldn't walk home to if something happened, I guess you could say. I don't think we went on vacations other than to go back to visit my father's parents or, or my, my mother's parents. I don't think we went on vacation anywhere, only because he was afraid to let the world see us, to touch us, to, to be near us, because he didn't know, he couldn't trust the world. He couldn't trust anyone. And he worked offshore, so it was something that he had to 
emotionally and mentally distance themselves from us because of the fact that what if something happened? He couldn't he couldn't invest any more of himself into us. Because if he did, if something happened to us, then he would live through everything he had to live through when Gina and Force were killed. So he just didn't. He was never open, vulnerable. Um, he was never present. He was always held back. He was always reserved. He was always waiting for the other shoe to drop. This, this death, this murder, <laughs> It still echoes. I've never let my child go to a sleepover. Ever. Because there are bad people. Bad things do happen. Adults do touch children. Men do steal women out of the donut shop. It happens. It's always happened. And I don't want it to happen to my child either. Hillary's story is devastating and a textbook example of how trauma passes down through generations. I have not one time I let my son go sleep over at someone's house. And that was because it was in the same apartment complex as us. I don't let him go. He's 11 years old now and he's been to that one sleepover ever. I don't know if that's a residual fear passed down from my father or if it's just because I know what adults are capable of. After I found out, I was probably about 13, no, it was freshman in high school. So I would be what, like 12, 13 years old when I actually found out what had happened. I know why my father did what he did. I don't approve of it, but I know why. I understand him now. As a parent myself, I understand it. I have fought so hard for so long for victims of family violence, for victims of violent crimes, and for victims of human trafficking. And all of it comes stems from the fact that a beautiful light was snuffed out of this world because somebody wanted 200 bucks for a register. Dude, are you serious? Like, like you took so much from so many, and for what? Like, for what? Two hundred bucks? What could you have possibly have purchased with that that made it worth destroying so many lives? I mean, she had two kids at home, a brand new baby, you know, and and a, and a toddler. Like, what justification is there on at all? They, I don't get it. I don't get it, and I will always fight against it. I will always, 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 always try to do everything that I can to make sure that people like that get what what they deserve. None of it will ever bring, ever bring my family back. None of it will ever repair the damage that was done to my family because of it. But maybe... Maybe it'll help another family not go through what I went through. Or what my father went through. Or heaven forbid what Gina went through. We thank Hillary for sharing her story. At this point in the story, you probably have a good sense of the McCrary's and their MO and their murderous escapades. And you might even be wondering, has any other family killed this way? repetitively and brutally, leaving a giant scar across the American landscape. Well, have we got another story for you. 
Over the next three episodes in parallel with the McCrary's, we're going to tell you the tale of the Bloody Benders, a murderous family from Labette County, Kansas, who ran a little inn and a general store and robbed and killed at least 12 travelers who came through their establishment. As the McCrary's did with Ginger, the Benders revolved around an alluring young woman, Kate, who lured travel-weary men into her insidious trap. The family began their murder spree in 1871, exactly 100 years before the McCrary Taylors. Another similarity to the McCrary's is that the Bender's run lasted over a year before they came undone. Here are two Bender experts, author and graphic novelist Michael Frizzell and investigative writer and producer Niall Capello with the Bender family's twisted and nefarious story. So in the aftermath of the Civil War, there was an expansion west, and in Labette County, there was a trail that many travelers traveled down on their way toward the gold rush and these sorts of things. And it was a great stop-off point for especially single men who were hoping to make their fortunes out in California. Labette County, Kansas was kind of sparsely settled, but most people will recognize that area of Kansas as a popular place when it comes to the Little House on the Prairie books. The Bender family was operating about the same time as Laura Ingalls Wilder and her family um, settling in the area. Who the Benders were kind of shrouded in some mystery. There was a father, Pa Bender. Some say he's John Bender. There are some accounts that call him William Bender. His wife, Elvira Bender, both the Benders Sr. and his wife, probably from Germany, some say maybe from the Netherlands. They spoke very broken English and were hard to understand. Most folks weren't really sure of their origins or where they come from or why in the world they would have come to Kansas. They had a son and daughter, John Bender Jr., and then Kate Bender, the youngest. She would have been about 23 at the time. The Benders operated as as a family. You know, the family business really was crime. Um, I, because I have done a lot of work looking at cults and controversial churches and high control groups. In these high control religious groups, you are influencing the people that you are around to share your ideology and to share your worldview, to approach the world in, in the same way. You know, that's why these groups are powerful. Um, when that is applied to a family structure, um, that adds an entirely different layer, um, especially when you have kids in different generations involved. Um, the, you know, the sense of being complicit in something is not as black and white as it might be in um, some other cases. So that, you know, I think that there's it, what, what's, what's really unique about this case for me, more than it being these like really early serial killers, is sort of the way that they operated as a family. And I think what sets them apart from, from other families, even from the McCrary's, is that they the women were really the ones who ran the show, which is, you know, particularly unusual, um, not only in terms of, you know, knowing that most serial killers, the vast, vast majority of serial killers are male, but also um, in knowing that, you know, women at that time were usually not the heads of household. They wanted to create what was called the Bender Inn. Um, it was a small cabin with lots of property that would ha- they could 
grow their own vegetables for the inn. They could uh, farm some animals and, you know, uh, feed travelers as they came by. And they envisioned their cabin as kind of a one-room bed and breakfast, if you will. Back then, the cabin was very small, and Kansas is very arid. If you've ever been to southeast Kansas, you know it's fairly flat. There are some rolling hills. And when they built houses, the houses were built just as, you know, like wooden shacks that were set up. In this case, they imported lots of limestone slabs. Um, They were brought in on a heavy wagon, and the wagon was structured in such a way where it was kind of an angular shape, an odd shape for a wagon with large wheels in the back to carry this heavy weight. No one really understood why they were building something like this underneath their cabin. It ended up being some kind of makeshift cellar that they created. The difference to me in the McCrary family is is more so in that disorganization and more so in the, the motive and the intent. You know, um, it's a different situation um, to me where the vendors were very calculated, very careful, had a very distinct plan. All of them were in on it and they worked together. Um, and the goal was to kill. You know, they're, they're, that was always the end goal. Um, whereas with the McCrary's, it seems like sometimes that happened and sometimes that didn't. And sometimes the goal was to rob them and sometimes the goal was to murder them and sometimes the goal was to rape them. And, you know, it was a little bit more on the fly. Um, and I think that really speaks to, you know, the motive and the goal and what, you know, why they are committing these crimes. Um, I just think it's interesting that the McCrary's were, were crime family. You know, they um, remind me a lot of kind Kind of the you know the classic like mob families, um, whereas they were you know well known kind of around town for being these problematic people, whereas the vendors were not that at all. You know they really put on a good front. They weren't you know um, people that were known for committing robberies or you know uh, being you know people you should watch out for. Um, so it does seem like the McCrarys had more of this like crime family buzz around them where they. They had, you know, had incidents before um, and were committing various different types of crimes, whereas the vendors were, were really only committing one very specific type of crime in, in a very specific way. The vendors themselves, <laughs> quite the characters. Uh, like I said, Pa Bender, you couldn't really understand. Ma Bender was quiet. Um reserved. After the cabin was built, Ma and Kate arrived by train and they were picked up in nearby Parsons, Kansas and brought to this area outside of Cherryvale, Kansas in the Bender Inn. How the inn operated, so Kate was beautiful. She was well known in the area for being just a, a lovely woman and the sight to behold, they, the flower of the prairie. No matter which side you believed on this, everyone agrees she was beautiful. And young men were attracted to her. And she started courting a man who went to the church that they all attended. And this man also ran a general store in the area. Kate would hang out by the front of the Bender Inn and young men would travel to the area. And they would stop at the inn overnight. They, of course, wanted to meet the infamous Kate Bender, but they also wanted to have a nice meal, maybe a place to sleep. The cabin itself 
was set up in a way that that was welcoming to travelers. So when you came in the door, it was a large open area with a kitchen toward the back, the a bed on the side, and the small dining area. The dining area had a, a tarp that kind of separated it from the main living area of the benders themselves. So if you can think of this small cabin, it's divided into two large areas where you couldn't see where the benders family slept or, or, or relaxed. This tarp was likely made from the cover on their wagon. Now, after a time, that tarp started to look pretty worn out, and there's a good reason for that. Over 20 people were said to have disappeared after visiting the benders in their infamous inn. The benders story continues in the next episode. After the Covey killings, Carl Taylor tore apart his 22 pistol into little bitty pieces, as he put it, fearing, of course, that his ballistics could be traced across all his victims. And what did he replace it with? Another 22 pistol. Way to cover his tracks. Next week, as law enforcement closes in on the McCrary Taylors, bodies continue to pile up. Bobby Jean English, 18-year-old from Dallas, who was found dead beside a Dallas County Road with her throat splashed. And out of Dallas comes a bulletin that could be the killer's undoing. When Gillespie gave, gave us that traveling criminal's bulletin, and... We looked at it. And I, I mean, I, I can remember just whacking myself in the forehead because I, I knew these people. I was chasing these people. And in the Pacific Northwest, Carl and Sherman pull one of their most bizarre murders yet. And I looked around, and there comes Sherman through the door, and I just looked around and I pulled out my gun and uh, she looked and started laughing I told her this ain't no toy girl it's all on episode 4 of Families Who Kill The Donut Shop Murders Families Who Kill The Donut Shop Murders is a production of Trooper Entertainment and Wondery it is executive produced by Dave Kaplan Randy Tatt and Alan Weeder written by Alan Weeder Co-executive produced, narrated, and edited by James Carroll. Supervising producer is Michael Wiley. Consulting producer is Detective Joe Finchuli. Ethan Darbone is the voice of Carl Taylor. Special thanks to Mark Turner and A3 Artists Agency. Mixed and mastered by Wildwoods, picture and sound. Theme song and scoring is by Nick O'Leary and Hush Empire. Additional music is from the Jingle Punks Library. Additional production by Lily Williner. Cover art by Teenage Stepdad. If you have questions or information about the McCrary case, feel free to email us at donutshopmurders at gmail.com. It helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast you enjoy. Thank you for your support. 